Oxford University Press provides a wide range of resources so that you have everything you need to support your teaching of geography. Student books and digital resources on Caboodle blend expertly, helping you to create a coherent curriculum and connect learning in school and at home. Accessible and exciting courses range from Key Stage 3 through to A-Level and include schemes of work and built-in assessment to save you time. Meanwhile, our best-selling revision guides and workbooks support students to consolidate learning throughout the year. Visit www.oxfordsecondary.com forward slash geography to find out more. Hello there and welcome to JogPod. Today it gives me great pleasure to be joined by Dr Pat Noxolo, who's a senior lecturer in human geography at the University of Birmingham. I had a look at the, the list of things, that, the, the list of roles that you've got, Pat, and, and I, I can only read a few out because otherwise we'll be here for the whole podcast. You're Chair of the Society for Caribbean Studies, you're co-editor of Transactions of the Institute of British Geographers, and you're Secretary of the race group on the Royal Geographical Society, which I'll come to later on. So I really appreciate you giving your time here and I know you're teaching again in, in a real short time. So thank you very much for joining us today. No problem at all. Do you know, it's been fascinating preparing for this podcast because your research is so wide ranging. It, it brings together international development, culture, security, insecurity, which we've talked about on other podcasts. You use post-colonial discursive and literary approaches to explore, well, spatialities, really, of a range of Caribbean and British cultural practices. So it's just, it's just fascinating. We've got such a lot, I think, to talk about. We must discuss your work on decolonising geography, I think. But later, I'd also like to talk about your work on black British geographies, because I know it's a theme that runs through much of your work. And I know you're now trying to bring it all together into a, a book-length project. So we, we can't wait. So first, though, I'd, I'd like you to talk us through a little bit about how you've used and approached Caribbean literature and, and through that, theorisations of space. OK. Well, I suppose I'm quite an unusual geographer in lots of ways because I didn't start off as a geographer. Um, I did geography at school, but then... Um, like most uh, black young people, I was thinking about, well, what happens after university? Can I get a job? Um, was kind of quite paramount for me. So I was thinking about what's a practical subject to do? And so I chose French, thinking that I would be an interpreter or something, and I would also get to travel, which was a big deal for me. Um, and so, uh, so I did a French degree. And during that French degree, I, di I did a lot about literature and, um, and was very interested in um, what novels in particular can tell us, um, not just about kind of big abstract things like the human condition, but about kind of, you know, where we live, why we live there, how we live in spaces, what sorts of um, relationships we have and how those relationships are, um, are conditioned really by, by where we are um, and not just the culture surrounding us, but the actual buildings and the actual surroundings and environments. 
so I kind of left my French degree already with some fairly geographical sorts of questions, but at the time I wasn't really thinking of them as such. I came into geography via development studies. And so I was already kind of interested in the rest of the world. Um, my family is from Jamaica. Um, and so I kind of always grown up with a sense of the Caribbean, although we weren't wealthy, so I didn't spend any time in the Caribbean, we were a big family and I'm the youngest. So we didn't kind of spend time in the Caribbean, but I knew of it and I had a sense of the culture of it uh, via my parents. And so um, once I started really thinking about geography, it was kind of obvious to me to start to read those novels that I, I hadn't been introduced to during my British education. So I started to read um, all kinds of Caribbean novels and began to really think about how do they represent, first of all, an island? You know, how do they represent that island space? What it's like to actually live in a small place, in a sense. Um, but also the, the many ways, what, one thing that's very noticeable in Caribbean novels as soon as you begin to read them is that, um, is that it's also about other places. So, so islands are very kind of uh, porous. Uh, you know, it's a bit counterintuitive. We think of islands as having very fixed boundaries and borders, but actually people in islands or living on islands have a tendency to move out of those islands and come back. They have a much larger sensibility because they're aware that their island is a small place. So that transnational identity is really strong within Caribbean novels. And of course, as I say, I'm the daughter of migrants. So I'm also, I'm always been very aware that Jamaican people in particular do travel. And the Caribbean novels were really clear about that. Lots of Caribbean novels have, have, uh, have it built into the form, which is something that I found very interesting. So that um, often they're built, many of the famous novels are built on um, letters, letters from a, a migrant back to the family and from the family back to the migrant. So a sense already of two localities. Uh, talking to each other and you know if we layer onto that the fact that of course these are post-colonial places so um so there's often a really interesting kind of dialogue going on between this between the Caribbean island and Britain as an island you know two small islands as Andrea Levy points out you know so so there's often that sense that um that the Caribbean is about a particular kind of space uh, and a very uh, uh, very much awareness of being in that space and what that means and how that conditions a life. On top of that, of course, they're, they're very kind of dramatic spaces in terms of um, the geomorphology. These are volcanic islands. So they're kind of really interesting islands in terms of how they were formed. And, um, and people are still very aware of that because of course that is the landscape. It's all written on the landscape very clearly. Um, so people talk about that a lot in novels. They're also really dramatic in terms of um, natural hazards, hurricanes, tropical storms. Uh, and so people are very aware of that, those aspects of geography as well. And they come out very strongly within the novels as well. The, the, often the, the lives of people within their houses are kind of mirrored by the landscape and the, the dramatic kind of uh, happenings in the weather uh, outside of the house. And so there's a lot of kind of geographical grist for the mill uh, in Caribbean novels. And I, I got very interested in all of that. Um, I was particularly interested in a writer called Wilson Harris, who's from Guyana. 
And Wilson Harris is a he was a, a fascinating person. He was a surveyor in his profession professional life and talked in really interesting ways about um what happened when he's uh, he had a, he was Guyanese, but he had a, a a European education, which was very much the case for for his generation still living under colonial British colonial rule. Um, so he um, he had that European training that sort of saw the landscape as something that could be that could be uh, changed. Uh, he his training taught him that we, for example, drainage systems could be put in in straight lines, uh, a rectilinear kind of uh, 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 landscape. And he said when he actually then went back to Guyana and really looked at the landscape, what he was supposed to do as a surveyor, he realised, he says actually memorably, the landscape tilted by which he means he he tried to impose these straight lines on the landscape. Then he looked at the actual landscape and said, actually, the landscape itself is really interesting. The landscape itself is really active and vibrant and uh, it can't be ignored. It can't be imposed on. Uh, and that's when he started to write poetry and novels uh, to be able to express his relationship with the landscape. Um, so he was kind of my, my introduction to how interesting uh, the Caribbean novel is and how geographical. And so that was my starting point, not only for reading Caribbean novels, but also for reading other things, development documents, for example, uh, in novelistic ways for applying that kind of reading. Uh, to texts that don't think of themselves as fictional at all. Um, but uh, but applying that kind of deep reading, I thought, brought out some other aspects. That's interesting, because there was just um, a link on Twitter, a question on Twitter about uh, how do you improve your students' deeper learning? Mm. And I think it was Tom had put on through reading, through extra reading. And it isn't just textbook reading but novel reading that makes those interconnections that otherwise a textbook might not necessarily follow because you've got four or five different things going on at once in a novel. Yeah. Plus the interest of the story itself. Brunner talks about using story. And I'm not sure that we use story as much as perhaps historians do in geography. Mm -hmm. And your story of being fascinated by, by novels to get you into geography, I think it's a real interesting way into the subject yes yeah I also had a great geography teacher who uh, who um kind of in back in the 70s when uh, the, the whole idea of a, of a kind of second generation uh coming out of that Windrush generation that commonwealth migration generation I think he was one of the teachers looking back who who understood that we were in a, an interesting moment and that the the young people that he was teaching were interesting um in terms of what they would bring to the country uh and in terms of what they were getting out of the country and I thought um he kind of interested me because he because he was an interesting person. Um, he didn't manage to make the very narrow geography curriculum at that time particularly interesting for me, I must say. Because <laughs> uh, growing up in the centre of Birmingham, there wasn't much concession to that at the time. And so it was, uh, it was all kind of like, you know, cloud formations and... Um, uh, and Jersey Cows, I remember, which was kind of, a, and I remember looking at it and thinking, what has this got to do with me? I think he struggled a bit with the curriculum, but I think he, but I still remember his, um, his enthusiasm and um, his understanding that, um, that it was an interesting political moment. 
Mm -hmm. So he was one of the few, I think, who, who kind of understood that, um, brought people in for us, to, for us to talk to and interview police officers, for example, um, when there were discussion about the SUS laws and things. So he was a, he was a very interesting guy and, and gave me a notion that geography could be quite interesting. Um, I don't think I got that from the curriculum at the time, but I certainly got that from him. <laughs> No, we talked on, on an earlier podcast about Ofsted in 2004, I think it was, saying that uh, the geography curriculum was tired and dated at Key Stage 3 mm. and was the worst taught subject in primary, partly because people didn't understand really what geography was. Mm. And, and it is difficult when you look at some of the things that, that you've talked about. I can see some people saying, well, is that, is that really geography? And yes, of course it is, but they, they don't, their view of geography is really quite narrow. Yes, yeah. I think it's one of the, the problems, I think, at school level is maybe differentiating subjects one from another. Um, so geography gets tied into a little box that's different from English and different from history. And, you know, whereas actually I, I find at, at higher education level that geography has lots of connections. Um, you know, it's not good. It's it, it tends to contest borders, if we like. So mm. it tends to, you know, kind of a lot of my work obviously makes connections with sort of English literature. And I spend a lot of time talking to people in English literature and then bringing that back to spatiality and, and to think about the core things that geography is about. But similarly, when I have conversations with people in kind of um, Caribbean studies, American studies, um, uh, in, and thinking about literature, they're thinking about climate change, for example, obviously, because everybody's thinking about climate change. So, so a lot of the things that are core to geography have spilled out into lots of other disciplines as well. Um, whereas I think in the school curriculum, there's a tendency to try to keep them separate. I think that's what you were saying before about reading is really interesting from that point of view, that geography has a slight tendency to think of itself as a social science uh, rather than a humanity, uh, um, a humanities subject. And for me, the interesting thing about geography is that it is both. You know, it is either, it is not either or, it is both and, both social science and the humanities. So it does have some things in common with history. Um, and that, that kind of deep reading of space, um, I think is a really interesting thing that we can contribute along with all the other sort of social science, uh, great things we do in terms of research, um, getting that sense that we can actually, you know, have an opinion about things, push agendas uh, and tell the story, particularly tell the story of Britain um, in, in interesting ways because we are human geographers. Mm. I think that's really interesting to do. And you've also linked it to, to, to dance as well. So Afro-Caribbean dance. Uh, and I read somewhere that you looked at Afro-Caribbean dancers embodied mapping, which mm. I thought sounded really, really <laughs> fascinating. So I've been very interested. I sort of arrived in the discipline at the time when, um, so in the, in the late 90s, at the time when feminist geographers have made quite a lot of uh, um, progress 
in terms of thinking about the political as personal and thinking about the geographical in relation to women's lives. Women's lives have been, I mean, in lots of formations coming out of feminist geography, women's lives have been very embodied lives. You know, we, we give birth and have children and, you know, white messes and uh, look after the sort of bodily <laughs> excretions of various <laughs> kinds. Um, so women's lives are often quite dominated by bodies, not not just their own. It's it's also an aspect of caring. Right? Um, so I benefited from that um, from those insights coming out of feminist geography to sort of think about those in relation to race. To be fair, geography hadn't been great on race um, previously, um, but I think as we've headed into the 2000s, it's starting to become a much more open space. Uh, and I think thinking about the body has been one of the ways in which um, that's been enabled to happen. And when we start to think about the body as an interesting space, not just the thing that moves through space, but uh, a space in and of itself, we start to be able to, to focus on a certain number, quite a lot of um, interesting cultural practices that are very heavily embodied. So I've kind of, in thinking about black geographies in particular uh, and Caribbean geographies as well, and, and of course Caribbean geographies are not always black geographies, um, to think about um, those things I started to, to think about how the body has been very important um, within black geographies. And that's because at one point, uh, and of course the Caribbean, op, um, the, the islands of the Caribbean tend to be post-enslavement islands. So at one point the enslavement was, was um, the condition uh, of black people in those islands. What that means is that um, at a certain point, our bodies were kind of all we had, you know, we stripped of all of everything else. And so um, dance has been important in the African continent anyway for, you know, for millennia, as far as we know. Uh, and it's certainly important in Caribbean culture as something that we brought with us right? and which could not be constrained and could not be taken away. It was not born by language. So um, so when, when um, on slave ships, people were put next to people who didn't speak the same language uh, and deliberately robbed of everything that, that identified them as a person with a particular kind of status and a particular kind of ethnicity. When they arrived and were put on the uh, auction blocks, etc., and arrived in the plantations, what they could share wasn't necessarily anything to do with language, although eventually, of course, they shared stories, etc., once they could find a, a shared language. But what they did share was uh, immediately was dance. They could share those embodied moves. They could share um, those rhythms. Um, they could share the sort of philosophy around what dance meant. And it was that that I tried to trace back to think about embodied mapping. What I wanted to do was stretch a number of things. One of them was to think about, about embodiment as actually something that's really important, not separate from the mind, because that mind-body dualism, that separation between the mind and the body is something quite European. It's not global. Um, and it's something that we don't necessarily see as something that is um, uh, intrinsic to Africanness. 
Now, of course, we're all very entangled with each other and and things get replicated across continents. Um, but that sort of sense that the that the mind is separate from the body, that only the mind thinks and the body is a, a dumb thing that gets dragged along with the mind, um, is, is a very European thing. It's not something that we, we can assume coming out of Africa at all. Um, and certainly when we see dance and we see dance moves, we can map them. We can see how they fit with certain parts of Africa, certain countries, certain regions. And we can see how that becomes replicated in the Caribbean when people bring those, you know, dominant uh, ethnicities, bring their dances across so we can map dances. But what I, I was interested in to think about, if you like, the genius of embodiment, to think about how how dances themselves could be maps. So then I had to shift, of course, what I meant by a map. It's not just a written thing. And there have been lots of people doing great work on this for quite a long time, lots of critical work, work on maps that I'm, uh, I'm sure well, I'm probably not the best qualified people, person to, to lead you through that. People like Jeremy Crampton and others have been doing really excellent work critiquing what a map is. And that's crucial, of course, when we think about Indigenous peoples and their claims to land, which are not based on um, archival maps necessarily. Uh, that were drawn by often colonial um, surveyors. Um, they're relying on other forms of cultural knowledge. And it's in that context that I'm, uh, I'm kind of introducing uh, dance as having what I call cartographic capacity, being able to show us our relationship between uh, our own bodies and the spaces in which we're, we're living, the spaces that, that form those bodies. So I'm trying to make those kinds of connections to say that in the African context, in various African contexts anyway, um, dance was not just uh, entertainment. It had some cultural purposes. And one of those purposes is to connect us to the ground, connect us to the, uh, the, the surrounding cosmology, to give us a sense of who we are in space. Um, so I wanted to kind of reclaim that within the dances that still exist now, uh, both in Africa and in the Caribbean, and to start to rethink what we mean by maps. And that connected very well with some of the things um, that, for example, the Royal Geographical Society is starting to think about for this recent Black History Month, they traced um, the kind of native guides, what were called the native guides that David Livingston um, had you know in all these explorations and these of course were geographers but their names never appear in the documentation um, and so it's trying to kind of reclaim that geographical knowledge as something that's not um, just about a very limited idea of what we mean by by geography what we mean by mapping what we mean by spatiality. And despite such a difficult and uh and traumatic journey, people still continued to laugh. Mm. And you've also looked at Caribbean laughter yeah. and materialities as well as, a, as a, a, a form of geography. Yes, I do find it really interesting to, to think about all a lot of different aspects of bodily performance. And obviously kind of thinking about dance is a particular kind of honed and choreographed form of bodily performance. Um, and it's interesting to think about that as a form of knowledge. 
But I wanted to, to sort of push that a little bit further and to think about the body as having its own intelligence, um, its own ways of thinking, if you like. So I wanted to use something, I wanted to think about laughter. Partly this comes from novels because we see Caribbean novelists really reflecting on laughter. I started with Earl Lovelace, who's a Trinidadian um, novelist. And it's clear within his most famous novel, The Dragon, the Dragon Can't Dance, um, which is a novel about, um, it's about carnival and um, a, a low-income community. And in particular, uh, a man in that low-income community who is, who is thinking about who he is. Um, the performance of laughter I noticed in that novel was very textured. You know, so so you got lots of different types of things that laughter was used for. Um, and that was something that I had also noticed in my family and in my community, that laughter is used for a lot of different things. It's one of the reasons why it can the um, academia can sometimes feel like a cold place um, because laughter isn't used in the same way. It is it is present, of course. Laughter is always present, um, but it's not um, it's not so integral to the way that we um, uh, communicate with each other. And sometimes it feels like one of those emotions, you know, laughter and crying and uh, all of these things. One of the reasons why we don't let children into the space because, you know, children unpredictably laugh and cry. And we can't have that when we're doing serious knowledge. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, so this is one of the reasons why sometimes the academy can feel like a, a quite alien space uh, to some Black people um, and I I guess one of the things that I noticed in Earl Lovelace was was partly that laughter gets used for quite serious things like for example when two men are trying to avoid violence they may use laughter as a way to um, to tone down uh, to ratchet down the emotion to release uh, some of the tension in the situation um, and to acknowledge each other as people um, when when one of them might be starting to act as if he's worried that you're not treating him you're not respecting him mm. laughter can be that thing that that just diffuses some of that so laughter has some really important kind of cultural um, functions and I think that's true across all cultures but it's very finely tuned in the Caribbean but laughter also I think has this um, has this capacity within itself also to be another of the ways in which the body thinks so I wanted to take seriously the way in which um, my starting point as I say as you said at the beginning is always the novel but to the the starting point of, of kind of thinking when does the writer make us laugh and why does the writer want us to laugh at that point? So um, it's not just that, you know, obviously there were some com some novels that are just comedic. And they just want us to laugh from beginning to end. But other novels kind of have certain moments when they want us to laugh. And what is that about? So that got me interested in how does the body take, take, um, take a role in us reading when we read? And why is the body important? Why is it important for the writer to bring the body in at those moments? Yeah. And it's not just about, you know, bringing in some emotion. It's also about kind of how does the body think differently um, when it is laughing? 
than it does when it's doing other things and when it's crying for example I think there are there are really strong reasons why novelists want you to cry at certain points as well but um but I'm very interested in what what laughter does so that it's a set of questions really and theories and you know and I'm at the level of culture that um, I'm working at and that a lot of other cultural geographers are working at um a lot of it is is trying to theorize trying to to think through why this might be the case because we're asking quite deep questions um, that often get well beyond language it's really difficult actually for us to voice I couldn't just interview uh, Lovelace and ask him you know he might not fully he, he might be very aware actually um, but what he thinks is going on but he can't be fully aware you know because it, it actually exceeds what we what our language is normally able to do um so that that idea of a kind of performance practice that goes beyond language I, I'm really interested in that but of course at that point you're theorizing um you're not, once the reader takes that in as well they yes. will process it in a different way too yes yeah absolutely and each reader is different right so it's about some a certain kind of cultural competence knowing that this is funny and and knowing that it's okay to laugh about it you know so there's a certain kind of cultural competence which actually I mean I found when I back when I was a school teacher I started off at uh, my first job was uh, teaching English and drama after the, my, my French degree one of the things that I found really interesting was was um, how how um how not reluctant but how how um unsure students were about how they should react to books you know it takes a certain kind of um I guess a kind of middle class competence but I mean I think that's a kind of restricted way of saying it but a certain kind of of competence to understand that you can relax with a book you know mm. uh that that the way that you react is the way to react and that nobody's expecting you to react in a different way or that another way is it better so if you laugh to, to laugh out loud at a book um takes a certain kind of cultural confidence right um which um so when people laugh on on the train in a in a big display of i'm laughing at this book look at me laughing at this book um there's a certain kind of confidence in there that not not everybody uh, is always able to to produce and i find that kind of interesting um, and something that relates to everybody. Um, I think there are particular kinds of cultural competence in the Caribbean though, um, within that sort of continuum of Caribbean culture. Gosh, it's a far cry from geography's beginnings though, as a, as a modern academic discipline anyway. Um, I, I, I found a quote from Hudson, who was talking about new geography. This is what he'd said. It vigorously promoted to serve the interests of imperialism in its various aspects, including territorial acquisition, economic exploitation, militarism, and the practice of class and race domination. Goodness me. And you've mentioned a little bit as we've gone through. It's not a start to celebrate, is it really? And today, geography still looks very white. When I look at the, the GA conference, the people who go to the GA conference, it's there are a huge number of geographers. It's still very white. So... I know that the Race, Culture and Equality Working Group of the RGS which, and, and IBG is focusing on the, the contradiction between that breadth of geography scholarship on race and post-colonial, because we, we, 
we think about it, but there's still a bit of a failure to address that within the discipline itself. And, and that's obviously one of the remits of, of the, the working group. So would you tell us a little bit about the group and its aims? Okay. I think um, it's a group that was, um, or at least the way that I would think about it anyway, it's a group that was brought together at a particular time when there were enough of us, uh, non-white geographers and also geographers who were interested in race and interested in equality. So that's a particular historical moment, right? Um, enough of us uh, to come together and to say we need a, a race group. I mean, if you if you think about a similar, I often think about the, uh, it's in analogy to feminism, to feminist geography, which was able to come together, you know, 30, 40 years ago um, to get enough of a, enough female geographers and geographers who were understanding enough of gender equality uh, to come together at that point. So as comes together, you know, only a few years ago, I can't quite remember, about five years ago, five, six years ago, it's not long. Mm. Um, so the aim of the group really is to, um, to raise issues uh, around race within geography, within the discipline. Uh, it's also to bring together a lot of the research that is coming out around um, race and equality. And there's a there's a good long tradition of that, actually. Um, but with but definitely picking up speed over the, the last decade or so. And so it's to bring together uh, some of that um, scholarship and to raise the visibility of it, um, to raise an understanding that this is important scholarship. Um, interestingly, around the moment when we first started as a group, um, we also, the, the um, theme for that year at the uh, World Geographical Society conference was decolonizing geography. That didn't come from us. Um, oh, we really? reacted to it, <laughs> but it didn't come from us. And, uh, and we reacted to it with a set of kind of quite probing and critical articles that were about, look, are we, are we actually, as a discipline, in fact, ready to decolonize? Because, of course, the danger of the language of decolonization is that uh, it just becomes language. You know, it's just um, everybody says, oh, yes, yes, decolonization is a very good thing. And then they all continue with their exploitative practices, um, having said, you know, having put out a statement. And we saw this, you know, after the, the terrible death of George Floyd um, in the USA earlier this year, we saw lots of organizations putting out statements. It's very easy to put out a statement to say, oh, we don't like this, let's not do it anymore, and yet to carry on with the same practices. So our response as the race group to, to the decolonization discussion that came out of having that theme for the RGS conference was to say, let's take a good long look at ourselves, what actually needs to happen for a discipline like ours, which as you say, is heavily rooted in colonialism. You know, we were the people who made colonialism happen by finding the resources, constructing maps to say, here are the resources so we can find them again. Um, and, uh, and making sure that um, the infrastructure was built so we could get those resources out of those countries extremely quickly. 
So, um, so geography was hugely complicit within um, colonization. And of course, at the end of colonization, um, in the independence moment, um, we still continue with forms of what we might call neo-colonialism, uh, forms of dependency of various kinds, forms of what we might more broadly call exploitation globally. And geography, of course, is still complicit with many of those things as a discipline. So we're not free of that colonial past and simply declaring ourselves decolonized is not going to cut it. We've kind of got to really think much more deeply about our structures. And as you say, you know, you might go to a sociology conference and not see such a white um, uh, discipline. So what is it about geography that reproduces um, the same kinds of scholars and learners? And we've really got to look quite deeply at the school level um, I think this is a really important um, question for geography teachers in schools. There's a quite an interesting WhatsApp group called Decolonizing Geography, which is really picking up speed. And that's amongst um, uh, geography teachers. Those kinds of initiatives, I think, are really important amongst geography teachers because that's where people get put off um, from studying geography. But of course, we've also got to think about, you know, what happens at my end of the discipline as well, at the higher education end? What are we doing? What are we demonstrating? And many of our departments up and down the country are still very white. Many of our undergraduates, um, most of our undergraduates are still very white. I have seen small changes over the time that I've been teaching, probably 25, 30 years now. I have seen some changes, but they are small. Um, and it is something for us to think about as a discipline. But I think we are thinking, and that's a good thing. I think we are we are trying and we are thinking, and um, there is a willingness to be pushed and challenged uh, on some of these issues, which, uh, which is, is the green buds of something. Is it a problem of both content and the, just the view of the subject itself as, as the subject, not just the content of it, but the way that people imagine what geography is. I, I, when I was at the Geographical Association, I, I did quite often get phone calls from parents saying, what's the value of geography? My son daughter wants to do it and I want them to be a lawyer or an accountant and do a proper job. What's the point of geography? So there's that element of it. Yeah. There's also the content itself too that we've got to we've got to interrogate and wonder where that's come from and what that's doing that's perpetuating what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of um, its relevance as a discipline, uh, I think it is possible to think about it as a discipline that's hugely relevant to a lot of young people. I've got three children, two of them did geography, one to GCSE and the other one to, um, uh, to A-level. Uh, the other one's a historian, the youngest. So, um, so there, there is that, I think what, what they found very relevant within the discipline was the environment, the stuff about environmental and climatic change. This is a huge thing for, for young people of all backgrounds just now. They're very committed to environmental, to, to um, stemming environmental and climatic change. And geography is an obvious place for them to look. So in terms of content, it's great from that point of view, um, very relevant uh, for a rising generation. I do think there are some maybe some issues about, particularly in terms of human geography, I think it's actually about um, 
it being a bit hidden, uh, human geography behind the physical. Um, so although people are aware, people are very aware of, of physical geography and what it um, uh, what it contributes, but they can't see a job in there apart from being a scientist. Um, but for human geography, I think they're not so aware of how it's about movements of people, for example. So it's very aware to my, it's very um, relevant to migrant cultures, um, but people are not very aware of that aspect uh, of the discipline. So we're still thinking that it's about identifying things on a map. Um, you know, as it is on quiz shows, let's move to geography to identify some things on a map, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> rather than actually it being something that you can take into a range of different jobs. So people don't think of it as something that's uh, where you will get employment. Um, and that's something, I think that that's actually about how we represent the discipline and that we need to push harder on making a connection between geography in fact it's a highly employable subject uh, and we need to just push very much harder on that to to really make that connection clear um, yes. people when they're thinking about it i do think though that there are some issues sometimes about schools not taking it seriously enough um in relation to other literary um subjects or other subjects where they uh where they're pushing for basic literacy, literacy and basic numeracy um so they're not kind of pushing hard enough on the sense that we do need these kinds of skills um within the workforce and that i think i guess that's partly coming from government right mm. uh, and, and uh, government um, priorities you you've talked about distinctly black geography scholarships coming from the usa and canada and the caribbean um, and that's growing, less so in Britain, perhaps. So what do you see as, as a black British geography? I actually do think that there is, um, there's a lot of distinctively British scholarship, black British scholarship. Um, I think that um, US-based black scholarship is more, um, is just more well known. Uh, globally, they have a louder voice globally than than Britain does. I think there are some specificities to the British situation which can't be um, just mapped onto uh, US the US situation. For example, the US situation is a post segregationist um, racial environment, um, which the UK. Uh, so Britain as an empire segregated in other places and did its racial segregation elsewhere, but it never did it in the mainland. So we're not, um, we're not in a segregationist situation, but we're certainly in a racially unequal uh, situation. So analysing that and thinking about what that means, there is a, a lot of scholarship just not in geography. So there is a rising black studies, for example, and we see at the other university in Birmingham, Birmingham City University has has what's becoming a very established black studies um, department and degree course. So we're seeing black studies, we've certainly seen a lot in history. And there's been uh, a lot of Black British history, quite a few publications about Black British history. I just feel like it's time now for there to be uh, a Black British geographies and for that to differentiate itself, but draw on 
um, Black Geographies, which is the US version, um, all the stuff coming out of uh, the Caribbean and African scholarship, which is about Britain abroad quite often, you know, in terms of its post-colonial setup. Uh, and also um, what's been happening in with Black British communities since we've been here in great numbers. We've always been here, but since we've been here in great numbers in since the 1950s. So I think that it's just kind of the moment uh, to do that kind of scholarship. There has been some scholarship within geography, um, but there hasn't been much. So there's there've been people like Peter Jackson, for example, wrote quite a lot of, uh, a few years ago, Maps of Memory, I think the book was called, uh, which was about um, the emerging black communities uh, within the British cities. Uh, there've been lots of people who've wrote, who've written lots of bits and pieces about cities and, um, uh, and black identities. And what I think is the moment now is to bring all of that scholarship together, give it some visibility and voice, and make it really clear that geography believes in something called black Britishness, right? Mm. That to me is the political stake, um, that geography as a discipline is able to substantiate and bring to light. So it's not just that we've been here for quite a long time. I say we, I mean, uh, black British people. It's not that we've just been here for quite a long time. And of course, already had a stake before we came because of colonialism. It's not just that, the old arguments about you, we are here because you were there. It's that, um, but it's also the fact that actually integral to the fabric of the British city is the black British person. And uh, I think we need to kind of, we as geographers, human geographers in particular, are really well placed to, to make that argument and to tell that story. I think we can bring together the existing scholarship, produce more of it, um, and really kind of build up that sort of um, momentum to be able to, to tell a different story at a time when actually it's still really very important in the, the narrative of the nation. Um, that we that that story gets told and heard. I'm going to take you out your comfort zone just a little bit. We're nearly we're nearly out of time now, but I want to ask you this last one. If I was back teaching now, what are the key messages I need to take into my teaching? Do you think at uh, at secondary school level and, and even primary school really? What what are the key messages that you want to give to teachers? Okay, so the, the, the first one that I would want to just really make clear is the kind of Doreen Massey lesson, which is a, a, a lesson about um, happenstance and space. You wouldn't have to use that language, of course. But what it boils down to is that everybody who is here belongs here, right? I think that that's a geographical statement, and this is the thing that Doreen Massey's work, um, particularly her book For Space, which I think is a great book, um, nice slim book, very accessible book. But what Doreen Massey, the point that she makes there is that space, rather than history, quite differently to history, space contains all the people that are in it. So in that moment that we talk about a city, take my city, Birmingham, in that city, there are people from all over the world who came from all over the world at various times. If we took a historical view, we think about when they arrived, etc. But taking a geographical view, we say, these are the people who represent Birmingham now. 
Birmingham is the people in it. Right? So everybody who's in that classroom belongs there, is there, belongs there, and geography is, a, is the story of what they're doing there, you know? That's it. I think that that's the, one of the major things that geography should be able to do. And I really wish that, um, uh, I think what I was saying about my geography teacher before bears on this because he made us feel like actually it was really interesting that we were here and mm -hmm. we should, we are then making Birmingham more interesting. You know, so it was all about us being in that space. To me, that's the first major lesson that uh, a geography teacher should be able to give to their students. It's me and my place in the world, isn't it, really? Yeah, it's and that my place in the world is where I am. Where I am, yes. Not where I should be or could be or where my parents were or, mm. you know, kind of trying to push me back into some ethnic origin or somewhere. I am here and therefore this is where I should be. <laughs> yes. Know? This is where I am. And so the uh, I think geography... The spatial question is a really interesting political question from that point of view. It deals mm. with the fact of where we are. Uh, and my place in the world should be about that. I think there are there is a struggle sometimes with the geography curriculum from that point of view. And I've seen, I have to say, some horror stories on exam papers. Uh, one young person said to me, it's like a UKIP manifesto. Why is migration a problem? Yeah. Why, why would this person think it's a problem? Why would that person think it's a problem? Um, and I think constantly kicking people, black people into, you are a migration problem or the place that you come from, that you really come from, is a, is a, a development problem. Uh, is actually uh, something very counterproductive that geography teachers are often forced into doing by their curriculum. Instead, we should be focusing on where you are now, why you have an important place there, uh, and what you are contributing to that place. I think that's a lovely place to finish, actually. That was <laughs> an absolute joy. Thank you very much. And I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Hi, it's Mark from the GA membership team. This week we have a special offer for you. The Top Spec Geography series is designed for post-16 students and provides an easy-to-follow approach based on the latest research on a wide variety of human and physical geography topics. These cutting-edge resources help bridge the gap between A-level and university and are the perfect accompaniment to A-level geography. Titles include Migration and Global Governance and Water and Carbon Cycles and you can now get 15% off any of the six titles available using the code TOPSPEC15. That's all capital letters, followed by 1-5. TOPSPEC15. Visit the GA shop on our website to purchase your copy today. TOPSPEC15.